This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Behind gray walls. This is Anthony, and I am speaking here with Sky. How's it going, Sky? Hi, it's good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm just enjoying this nice uh, summer thunderstorm here uh, in Boise. And uh, I've got my dog sitting next to me, and she's a little upset, so I apologize beforehand if you hear barking or squeaking or Aww. that little, little sad Hi, noise. Uh, she's yeah. just a little scared. So <laughs> anyway, let's get to the show. Let's uh, talk about some, some of our uh, incarcerated individuals here. Who do you have to talk about today? Oh, hi, Olive. Poor thing. (laughs) All right. Poor baby. So my inmate today is my very first um, examination of an African-American female inmate, as well as our very first African-American female inmate here at the the penitentiary. That is number 917, Susie Duffy. Let's see. So she uh, came into the prison from uh, Nez Perce County, she was 17 when she came in, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later. Um, and then I'll get into some of all these details. Uh, yeah, some of all these details uh, a little bit later. So sources: uh, her inmate file. I found a newspaper, the Lewiston Teller, through the Library of Congress chronicling America. Uh, possibly Ancestry.com, and I'll explain why. Possibly, uh, kind of toward the end of her story. Uh, Wikipedia and the sources that they took me to, the reference series on the Idaho State Historical Society, and I did use the reference series uh, during um, what I call episode zero, that episode that has the brief history uh, of, of Idaho and the penitentiary that we did uh, before we started our, our examination of inmates. I used it then, but they have added a lot since I checked. So if you have any questions about Idaho history from uh, you know, a history of Boise and Lewiston to the territorial days to more recent. They have um, a ton of different documents. So please, please go check that out. Uh, you can find answers to questions that, that we don't have time to dig into here on the podcast. So if you're interested, please go check that out. And then the last one I have is one article from the Idaho Daily Statesman. She did have more than one article written about her in the Statesman, but there was just one that I used. So um, I will just preface this by saying that Susie Duffy's story is just really difficult to tell because we don't really know that much about her. Uh, The simple fact is that she was an African-American woman in the early 20th century. 
Um, and this is probably why we don't know anything about her. She is in what a lot of historians and scholars call a double bind. And what that means is she is um, sort of not privileged to be heard of in society because she's African-American, but then she's doubly not privileged because she's an African-American woman. You know, unfortunately, the, the simple fact is that you know, African-Americans weren't listened to, but African-American women were listened to even less uh, and frankly cared about even less. And, uh, you know, obviously now we seek to change that uh, in, the, you know, the simple fact that I'm telling her story at all. The Gilded Age had just actually just studied in class today. Uh, the Gilded Age had just ended. Reconstruction wasn't didn't hadn't gone well. Jim Crow laws are just really getting ramped up. And so prejudice against uh, black people um, in the South as well as in the North, it's, it's, not, it's not good. And so this is probably why we don't have that much about her. Uh, most of the information that we have about her early life comes from Susie herself in her intake form. And that's because she answers the questions herself. Um, you know, when they come in, they have a prison official that sits down and says, how old are you? How much do you, uh, you know, like, where are you from? Where were you born? When did you leave your parents' house? Um, and this is really all we know about her early life. So we know that she was born in Kansas uh, around 1885 or 1886 or so. She was raised as a Methodist in the Methodist Church, and she attended Sunday school as a child. She claimed not to have attended secular school, but she stated that she could read and write, which is starting to probably be a little bit more common for freed African-Americans, but she is really only uh, about one generation removed from slaves who uh, were not allowed to learn how to read and write. It was mm -hmm. quite forbidden. And if they did know how to, to read and write, then they did it uh, secretly. And so um, mm -hmm. that is a really interesting and important distinction, uh, information that we know about her. All right. So her father died when she was about five years old. Uh, it's likely that her mother remarried. And at some point, Susie moved with her family to Kansas City, Missouri. She left her parents' home when she was about 15 years old, and that's presumably to begin working in the housekeeping profession. She probably ended up in Idaho from Missouri because, according to her intake papers, her nearest kin, her nearest uh, family member, was her uncle Jass, um, probably short for Jasper uh, Reed, and he owned a club in Spokane, Washington. Uh, she must have gone to live with him probably by the early 1900s uh, as a teenager. She maybe worked in the club in some capacity, but we, uh, we don't know if that's the case. She may have just lived with him and found work elsewhere. And what was this club? Uh, it doesn't say. It just says, according to her intake form, it just says um, it's actually a, quote, club, unquote. The intake form is the only time we ever see his name even mentioned, Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, it's not like it, it had a lot to do with her crime or anything yeah, like that as far no as I can tell. Mm -mm. Okay. Somehow she crosses the, the river um, from the Washington area into Lewiston, Idaho, or at least somewhere near there in Nez Perce County. It's probably most likely that it's Lewiston. It is the largest um, city in Nez, the Nez Perce County, but... We don't know that for sure, but I'm going to give you a history of Lewiston anyway, because I haven't yet. And again, I, I'm feeling somewhat confident that it probably happened in Lewiston. So, as we know, the Nez Perce people occupied the, the Lewiston area for thousands of years, far before any white people uh, even touched down 
Uh, as we know, then, Lewis and Clark in about 1803-1804 passed through the area, hence uh, the twin cities of Lewiston and Clarkston, which are right across the river from each other in different states. Lewiston was founded in 1861 as a gold rush had begun in Pierce, Idaho, about 80 miles east of Lewiston. And then President Abraham Lincoln created the Idaho Territory in 1863, so about two years after the, the city was founded. And Idaho's first governor, William H. Wallace, decided to organize the new territorial capital in Lewiston because of its proximity to mining. Now, uh, I talk a little bit about how the territorial capital was moved from Lewiston to Boise in that episode zero that I mentioned. Um, so I won't elaborate on it too much here. The basic story is that Boise actually became a, a big area for um, like a mineral and, and uh, gem mining. And, uh, and so uh, the new territorial governor, Caleb Lyon, took um, with a, a, an assistant or two, took the state emblem and the territorial constitution and fled uh, down to Boise. And uh, in some shady backroom deals, Boise was given uh, territorial status over Lewiston, and that was in 1866. And so uh, Lewiston lost their ter territorial capital status, unfortunately. Uh, the, no the people in the North were angry about this. Um, you know, they had the prestige as the territorial capital. It, it took about 20 years. They were eventually placated when the University of Idaho was put in Moscow. So Moscow, Idaho gets it. In 1893, the Lewis and Clark Normal School, um, which it's called the Normal School just to dif differentiate it from like what was called then like an insane asylum or, you know, a, a school for delinquent people or something like that. It just basically is just saying it's a college. Uh, and the Lewis Clark Normal School was one of the state's first institutions of higher learning. Um, and that was established again in 1893. It's now the Lewis Clark State College. I almost attended there in my undergrad. So since then, because unfortunately that's sort of the last thing of note, um, Lewiston just has sort of lived its own existence up there. Um, so since then, uh, Lewiston is Idaho's only seaport. It is navigable uh, for barges on the Columbia River, which is one of Anthony's most favorite fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. I think we should be proud of that. I, I, it is pretty yeah. cool, but it doesn't mean we get any good seafood, despite Anthony's many protests. <laughs> I uh, happen to not eat fish, so it, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't <laughs> affect me either way. So it's... <laughs> All right. So um, Clearwater Paper also has a factory just along the river there in Lewiston. And I very unkindly said that Lewiston didn't ha It was a pretty area, but they had this factory that smelled up everything. I apologize for that. But the factory that smells everything up is that Clearwater Paper factory it's the largest employer uh of of residents in the area it's it's super massive too like driving into lewiston you see this thing it's like its own little island and it's this massive huge huge factory system yeah so um you know not only does it have the the nation's most inland seaport but it also has a giant paper factory that uh is very important uh, i think I've seen schools that, like, I think my high school used Clearwater Paper. Like, it's definitely uh, a big paper supplier. So, go Lewiston. As of 2010, the population of Lewiston was 31,894. The 218 estimate was 32,817. 
So in eight years, that's about a thousand people uh, growth. Uh, and then the 2020 census where we will know for sure what that, that population is that will come out next year. So on to Susie's crime in probably Lewiston. Uh, we don't know that much about it. All we know is according to an article in the Lewiston Teller on April 10th, 1903. And it says, Susie Duffy convicted of grand larceny, the robbing of Frank Norris of $1,020 will be sentenced at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Judge Steele made an order to that effect yesterday. Whoa. So 1903, $1,020. How much mm -hmm. is that, Sky? The first uh, inflation calculator I checked, the only it only started in 1913. Uh, and in 1913 money, it would have been $26,000. But I found another inflation calculator that actually went back as far as 1885. And so... Um, oh. According to this website, in 1903, the $1,020 would be $29,000 in 2019 money. $29,000. Wow. Yeah. So this isn't just some tiny little petty theft. This is a lot of money that she steals. This is truly grand larceny. Yeah. It's, and, and I don't know, I, unfortunately, you know, we don't know if it was sort of uh, like a Mildred Knox sort of situation where... You know, he, for whatever reason, gave it to her or he was drunk and she took advantage of that or it was, a, you know, a whole robbery situation. We don't know. So when Susie was arrested, she pleaded not guilty to the grand larceny charge. Apparently, there was not very much evidence evidence against her. And I think that we can assume the arrest and subsequent charge is, has a lot to do with her race unfortunately. Uh, again, that's that's just, just the way it was. We don't know if Frank Norris was white or if he was black. Again, going back to that double bind, even if Frank Norris was black, he was a black man compared to a black woman. And so I think his word would have been valued um, much more even over hers. Uh, so even though she pled not guilty, the, the jury found her guilty and she was sentenced to three years and four months at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She entered on April 19th, 1903 as the Idaho State Penitentiary's seventh female inmate. And again, that first African-American female inmate. She would have been kept in a separate cell, the 1890 cell house with Josie and with Ida Laherty, who hopefully we'll cover later this season. But Ida and, and, and uh, Susie were only kept together for about two days before Ida was released. But they all would have shared that, that 1890s uh, cell. So um, this is a kind of the rest of her intake form. So Susie Duffy arrested in Nez Perce County. She was uh, found guilty of, of grand larceny, sentenced to three years, four months. She was 17 years old when she was received. She was only 16 when she'd committed the crime. Um, what? Yes. I, I have never made that connection about how young she was. Um, and and wow. honestly, her mugshot, she looks older than 16. She does, yeah. And and so, because, you know, we have mentioned before that Ida was 16 at the time as well. But Ida looks sort of 16. Yeah. Susie yeah. definitely looks older. And, and so I think, you know, it, it is, I guess, and that's the thing too is we never really counted her among the youngest inmates that we had. We always said like, oh, Ida Laherty and, and Daisy Parsley were some of the youngest, but they were the same age as Susie. Right. I mean, 
at least when they committed the crime. Yeah, and I think it's because Ida is not uh, African-American. She's she's a 16-year-old white girl who's yeah. incarcerated, and the newspapers write about that, and that's why she gets a pretty quick release from this the prison. And, you know, this, this is kind of a, an interesting part of this story that Ida gets released, and she's like 16, and Susie does not. Ida did just steal some horses, right? But uh, it's not $29,000. But uh, still, like, I have never made that observation about how young Susie was, even though right then, like, both she and Ida were incarcerated together. It's crazy. Right. And, and, you know, we actually have Susie in various places around the penitentiary. Um, She is featured out in the Faces exhibit. We also have her on uh, the back of one of the versions of the map that we hand out. Um, and, And I don't even think in either of those it's mentioned how young she is. And again, she just looks older. Like I'd say she probably, she probably looks in her like early 20s at the youngest. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we do forget that she is so, I mean, 17 is so young for her to, to be kept in this prison for three years. So um, she was 17 when she came in, born in Kansas. Um, her legitimate occupation was housework. Um, she was five feet, two inches tall, 130 pounds, had a black complexion, black hair, black eyes, um, which they were probably brown, but... Uh, Prison officials were not interested in being racially sensitive. Duffy, uh, Susie was was single when she came into the prison. Her father died. Her mother was still living. Uh, again, she attended uh, Sunday school in the Methodist church. Um, she could read and write. And she was abstinent uh, in her habits of life. Uh, you know, her nearest relative was Jasper Reed in Spokane. Her teeth, condition of her teeth was fair. She had five missing And then her boot was a size four. So when she arrives in the prison, her health is not good. But that's pretty much all we know of Susie's time in the penitentiary. Um, Unfortunately, you know, not only is she an African-American woman, but she also comes in at a time where just prison records are not good. They're just they don't keep track of what the, the inmates do day to day. And um, so we just know that she once she comes in, she gets pretty sick. So Susie ends up serving almost two years until January 1905 when Susie and presumably her lawyer, but only her name is on this petition, they petition the Board of Pardons for clemency. And there are four main reasons that they they sort of uh, discuss in terms of, of why she should get clemency. First is that Susie, quote, was convicted on very slim evidence and by parties to whose advantage it was to have her convicted in order to shield themselves. This is a very vague, you know, explanation of the fact that there were some other, some parties involved. Now, whether they were directly involved with the robbery and she basically got it pinned on her, whether, you know, it was a a white man who had some sort of vendetta against her for whatever reason, we don't know. But, But basically what they say is it was to their advantage to have her arrested and sent to prison. Um, So that's the first reason. The second is that Susie was only 16 years old, which we've talked about. The third is Susie was, quote, in very poor health, being constitutionally a sufferer from epilepsy and lung trouble. So that being kept in the penitentiary, she will no doubt die before her time expires. Oh, wow. 
and and I noticed something that's kind of interesting is she is out of the 14 women, 13 women I think that I have recorded this is she's the third that in some way has mentioned epilepsy. And I wonder then if it was sort of an umbrella term for just like any sort of neurological disease. Um, if it was, I don't know if it was actually epilepsy, because again, we don't have any records to determine if that was the case or not. And so I, I'm wondering if that's just uh, something that they, they didn't have a, a name for, just didn't want to name. Kind of a catch-all phrase for yeah. any number of issues, yeah. Yeah, I just have found that really interesting that, that she's the third one. And granted, uh, the other ones were, I think, in, in the 40s and 50s, but... I just find it interesting that that it has played such a, a prominent part in our in our ladies' histories. So she was she was quite sick, um, but then the last uh, reason that she should be given clemency is that there were not any provisions made by the state to care for female inmates if they suffered from illnesses like Susie did. The Lewiston Teller stated that Susie was suffering specifically from consumption, um, or what we know today as tuberculosis. The Board of Pardons did not meet to discuss Susie's case until March 1905, so it took uh, about two two months for that petition to be considered, which, if she has tuberculosis, that is a long time. I don't know if they couldn't grant a special meeting, if they didn't care to grant a special meeting. I don't know why it took so long, because normally inmates are sort of advised as to when the, the parole board is meeting next, and so they'll write only a couple weeks in advance to say like, hey, when you meet here in a couple weeks, I'd like to be considered. But it took two months for the the Board of Pardons to, to consider her case. But when they meet in March 1905, she is granted a full pardon subject to take effect on March 15th, 1905. There's one condition, and it's that Susie Duffy had to immediately return to her parents or probably her mother and stepfather uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. So she does actually get released on March, uh, March 15th, 1905, and she served one year, 10 months, and 24 days at the Idaho State Penitentiary. According to an Idaho Daily Statesman article from March 16th, 1905, a group of black residents from the Boise area actually took up a collection to help Susie get back to Missouri because she had spent all this time in, in the penitentiary. Um, she probably didn't have much money to her name. And not that train tickets were overly expensive, but she did have to get halfway across the country, so it would not have been a cheap endeavor. So it's, uh, I mean, such a, a testament to the uh, Black community out here in the early 20th century. There weren't very many, but they looked after each other. And that's, that's amazing. Uh, we do know that Pocatello had a fairly large... Uh, African-American population, though, that probably wasn't really even until at least the 1920s. Yeah. Idaho has never been known for its its diverse population, um, but especially so, uh, I would imagine, at the, the early 20th century. So they took up a collection to get Susie back to Missouri. She took a train out of Boise on March 15th, so as soon as she was released from the penitentiary, uh, she took a train and left town. And according to the same Idaho Daily Statesman article, her condition is such that little hope is held out for her recovery. So it's a pretty grim outlook for her. And this is all we know of Susie Duffy. 
Unfortunately, Ancestry.com is really of little help. Again, mostly because Susie was an African-American ex-convict, so there just aren't really any records. However, I did find a record that may possibly be her. This is a findagrave.com record of a woman named Susie Duffy, spelled the same way, who died on July 7th, 1921, and is buried in Atchison, Kansas, which is only miles from Kansas City, Missouri, and it's also kind of along the border of Missouri and Kansas. So if this is her, that means that she recovered from her tuberculosis after getting home to her family and lived another 15 years. Still, she would have only been 35 years old at the time of her death, which is super sad, but would also, I think, still lend credence to the fact that she seemed pretty ill, both once she was in prison and before. Mm-hmm. And so if that is, or that's, it seems to me that that actually could potentially be her, which is very exciting to have found that. But if this isn't her, then we just know absolutely nothing about Susie's life after she left the penitentiary. And, th- and that's it. You know, it's frustrating to, to research inmates as early as Susie because we want to know more about their stories, um, but we can only tell the stories as far as the sources tell us about them. And that kind of sucks because especially with someone like Susie, whose story deserves to be told um, far more than, than the sources can tell us, we are a little bit fortunate that the, the circumstances at the end of her incarceration allowed for some greater sources for her to be written about in the newspaper. It is a little bit more than we have for some of these other inmates. You know, one inmate, all I had was literally two sheets in her, her inmate file and at one, uh, I think one article in the Library of Congress that I found. I want to do her more justice, but, but unfortunately I just can't. And so this is, you know, that's all the story that we have. For, yeah. for number 917, Susie Duffy. I think your research gives credence to the fact that she's an African-American woman in Idaho in the early 1900s. Like, there's not going to be a lot written about her. And I, I really like that story. I like that the community came together and, and helped mm-hmm. her get home. That's that's kind of a sweet, touching aspect of it. And I Well, and we do find that quite a bit, you know, in these stories are, is the, the community, the family, you know, whoever it is that, that really sticks up for them. Who was it that I just did that had the, the WCTU that took care of them, uh, took care of her after she came in? Uh, oh, yeah. it was it was uh, Jenny Daly, um, Daly who okay. had had the WCTU kind of care for her um, after she was released. So so the, the Boise community, you know, they took care of their own even when they, you know, were in unfortunate circumstances. But I think it's even more exceptional that it was that it was an African American community really caring for their own, even though their numbers were small. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I love that story as well. Very good. Well, nice work, Sky. I mean, Thanks. with the limited resources you had, I think you you told a pretty good story there. Well, thank you. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. Thank you.
If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. All right, so who have you got for us? Okay, so today I'm going to talk about an inmate that I have a lot in common with, and uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, His name was Delane Dwight Anderson, and his nickname was Red. And his numbers, numbers, plural, were 8045 and 10578. The sources I use pretty typical, the inmate files, ancestry files, and a little bit of the South Dakota State Archive. And uh, that is just basically to figure out where he was born. He was born in Lake Andes in South Dakota, November 10th, 1932. Uh, His father is from Hoskins, Nebraska, and uh, is somehow, somewhere, he ended up going to South Dakota and meeting his uh, Delane's mother. Um, in South Dakota, and they would have six children together. And so Delane, he would have five siblings, including two brothers and three sisters. So where did he fit in that in that family? I think he was the second oldest. So he was up there at the top. Yeah. Uh, he got an eighth grade education, and he grew up in the Methodist church. So just kind of like Susie, he was Methodist. Mm-hmm. Uh, his family moved to Twin Falls sometime after 1940, and because at about 17 years old, he was working as a carpenter there. And his parents operated a, a hotel in Twin Falls, which uh, they seemed to do for over 20 years. And I, I threw all my dick, and I could not quite pinpoint which hotel that they ran there but delane you know he was kind of a a problem child Uh, at about 16 he committed his first crime he uh broke the dyer act which is in 1948 he uh stole a vehicle an automobile and crossed state lines and so he was actually sent to elka nevada and given a three-year probation and that did not stop him from returning to Twin Falls to his parents' house and forging a couple checks in 1948 and uh, spending some time in the Twin Falls jail, the county jail there. So he was 16 mm-hmm. when he co- the committed the Dyer Act. Yeah. So he was just given probation because he was so young. Yes, I believe so. Okay. Yeah, this, this would escalate uh, in 1950. In Lava Hot Springs. So he, he was given these, like, as a teenage boy, he's given these terms in jail and given probation. So he's kind of already setting his life up. And I think at the top, I said that I have a lot in common with this guy, not this aspect of his life. So we'll get to the point where I have a lot in common with him. Whatever, Anthony, you're a, <laughs> you're a real criminal. Oh, yes. So 1950... <laughs> Lava Hot Springs. And Lava Hot Springs, if, I don't know. Have you ever been there, Sky? Uh, I think I've driven past it, but I don't think I've ever... Is that <laughs> is the Lava Hot Springs the one that has the, the joking sign that says, uh, beware of crocodiles or something like that? <laughs> is that Lava Hot Springs? Dang, I sure hope so. I don't know. I, I haven't <laughs> been, but I've read a lot about it. And I think I'm going to plan a, uh, a trip there this, this fall because it sounds amazing. Well... 
Beware for crocodiles. I, well, yeah, I will now. <laughs> so, <laughs> Lava Hot Springs, it's in Bannock County. It's it's southeast of Pocatello, and it runs along the Portneuf River, which is this tributary of the Snake River, and which, you know, the Snake mm-hmm. River kind of runs through southern Idaho and all that. But the Portneuf, of course, it comes from a name given by French fur trappers who first, like, entered the area in, like, around 1820s. Prior to this, for thousands of years, it's it's a hot spring, and Bannock and Shoshone mm-hmm. people would travel through the area regularly and stop in and meet, and it was considered a, a neutral area, and it's got this fantastic natural geothermal hot spring mineral water that is odorless. So it's just this, like, great, invigorating, life-giving water. You know, it was seen as a spiritual place to, to rejuvenate yourself. And, uh, I mean, nothing has changed. Like, now it is still that, that same hot spring that welcomes visitors all year round. Uh, but before all this happened, it was actually called Dempsey before 1915. And there was this man named Bob Dempsey who came over from Europe and was a trapper and a mountaineer and all these different things. And he actually married a, I, I believe, a Shoshone woman and was very friendly with the local tribes. And this is in like the 1890s, early 1900s that he's living here and living on the land and at these springs and kind of develops this establishment. And then in 1915, it starts to develop and they, they construct a railroad through the area and it starts to get settled and, uh, you know, from then until today, visitors have been encouraged to stop and soak in these in these beautiful hot springs. So it's, that sounds, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like an odorless hot spring. Yeah. And oh. they have this great, like kind of rough water inner tubing there off this, this Portneuf River, which also sounds super fun during the summer. I think that would be a an awesome place to stop. Yeah, that'd be super fun. Go go tube in the summer and, and hot springs in the winter. Uh, Oof, ideal. <laughs> I'm already missing that out here in Texas. Oh, man. Uh, they don't have... It is... Listen, today it was 103 degrees. Gross. Well, how's the moisture? Apparently, it's quite low right now. When I first got here, it was, it was rough. I will say when I go running, I'll go running at like 6 o'clock in the morning. I have never sweat... <laughs> Like I have sweat before out here, like sauna like. And of course, everyone from the South is like, what's the big deal? We all know in Idaho, it is dry as a bone. Yeah. Yeah. It's that beautiful dry heat that we all enjoy so much. <laughs> I think I would prefer the dry heat. Oh, to I be quite do. honest yeah. with you. Yeah. I absolutely. Uh, that is not a joke. I, I love our dry heat. Listen, everyone in Idaho appreciate what you have with your lava hot springs in the winter and the summer (laughs) yeah seriously (laughs) all right may 11th 1950 it's about midnight delane and his little buddy gene nooner decide to go to this place the mission bar here at lava hot springs gene parks the car and he decides to wait in the driver's seat while delane walks up to the bar he breaks the window reaches inside and unlatches the door then starts rooting around he pockets a 22 caliber pistol and heads to the cash register but as he's doing this he sees a vehicle coming up it's the town marshal and the marshal approaches gene who's sitting in this this getaway vehicle and asks if the owner had let them in and gene is like oh yeah so then he asks uh are you helping him carry some items out or something and gene said yeah of course 
then asked what items they were helping with, and Gene said he didn't know, but that the oh. owner is inside, and if he wanted to go ask the owner himself to go right ahead. So the marshal approaches the bar. Gene honks the horn twice, and Delane runs out front, and the marshal stops him and says, hey, are you asked to be in here? Are you supposed to be in here? And Delane's like, oh, yeah, of course. And uh, the marshal's like, huh, okay. And Delane's like, yeah, go ahead and go check with the owner. He's inside. So the marshal enters the building. He takes the bait, and he yells the owner's uh-huh. name, but he doesn't get a response. And so Gene yells, hey, I think the owner's in the back of the building. So the marshal goes inside, and uh-huh. Delane hops in the vehicle, and they drive off with this twenty-two caliber uh, pistol. I listen. This the sheriff sounds like a a sitcom version of a sheriff. Like <laughs> that's so sad that he got duped so hard. Right. Like well, he doesn't yeah. get an answer, and Delane's just like, "Oh, he's in the back," and he's like, "Oh, he's in the back." You say like, right? Oh, uh, I feel so bad for him. And I mean, he's dealing with these two like eighteen-year-old kids, so I don't, I don't think he thought that there was anything to worry about. That I think they were they were playing him pretty well. I think the marshal, he was a little smarter than he let on. And uh, five days later, they are arrested in Twin Falls and brought back to Pocatello to await their trial. And there's no explanation. I couldn't figure out how they were picked up, but I can only imagine that the marshal probably wrote down their license plate and, like, described them. And because Mm -hmm. Delane had been in trouble... It it was probably not hard for them to be like, oh, yep, we know the perp. Let's we'll get him. Don't worry. We you know, there his mm-hmm. his parents run a prominent motel downtown. So let me just uh, take care of that. So yeah, they arrest him. They lock him in the jail, and not long after, Delane, Gene, and three other men who were in this jail break out. They slide through the bars and climb down this improvised rope in the middle of the night a month after their arrest. Oh. Within three hours, Delane is recaptured. Gene is actually, Gene makes it out. He's recaptured a month later in San Diego. Delane is charged with burglary in the nighttime and escape from jail. (laughs) So Delane enters the prison August 1950, and his intake shows that he's 180 pounds. He's six feet and a half inch tall. He's got sandy hair, blue eyes, medium complexion, and a tall and husky build. So still, I mean, maybe this is close to me, too. I'm six feet tall, and <laughs> I have sandy hair and blue eyes, but uh, that's still not... You do not, not weigh 180 I pounds. I don't. He's, he's got about 30 you, pounds. Uh, you maybe, maybe weigh 100 soaking wet. <laughs> no, I weigh more, more than that. <laughs> Okay, uh, like 110. <laughs> You're like the thinnest man I've ever met in my life. No. <laughs> I weigh a, a solid 155. So, Delane okay. lists that he smoked, but he didn't gamble or do drugs. And, uh, you know, I couldn't find anything that he had a very uh, problematic incarceration in this first time. He's paroled 11 months later. And he violates that in 1952. And I couldn't find out what his violation was there, but uh, he's arrested, returned to serve a year between October 1952 and 53, and then he's finally discharged from parole in February 1955 after his release in 53. Now, during that parole, he actually married Roberta Marie on February 6, 1954 in Elko, Nevada. On their divorce certificate, spoiler alert, she worked as a seed sorter during the wintertime. And 
I mean, this seed sorter thing, that was just, that'll just come in handy here in a minute here. They were divorced okay. September 18th, 1955, but there's no grounds listed on their uh, divorce paper. Probably having oh, to do with him, you know, breaking his parole and going back to prison and, and all of that and finally being released again. August 1955, Delane and three other men were suspected of brutally assaulting an Air Force lieutenant as he and a sergeant from the Mountain Home Air Force Base approached their Twin Falls hotel. Uh, Delane and his partners had made these smart remarks at the lieutenant while they were at the bar. They waited outside his hotel, and when he arrived, the trio pushed the sergeant aside and beat the lieutenant. Lieutenant sustained a mild concussion, a lacerated cheek, and contusions of the nose, jaw, and eyes. So they really beat this this lieutenant down. The lieutenant said that he had been in the tavern earlier in the evening where these men had been smart towards him, but he just kept ignoring them. And fortunately for Delane, these charges were uh, were dropped. So the lieutenant did not decide to, to press charges against the three men, And but pretty much his name is plastered all over the newspapers as the reason why this, this lieutenant was beaten up. Two years later, he marries this woman named Elaine. So Delane and Elaine Anderson. No way. Yeah, I love it. And <laughs> oh, they marry. That's terrible. <laughs> so Elaine and Elaine are married November 23rd, 1957. Their first child actually dies at birth. And in 1961, they have a second. But unfortunately, soon after this, this daughter is born, Delane is in trouble with the law again. He's arrested and charged with burglary in the first degree once again for uh, stealing some s- sacks of beans from this uh, Haney Seed Company with with a partner named Robert Joseph Tate, number 10548. And they are both caught and sentenced to burglary in the first degree and charged and sentenced to not more than 15 years in prison. So, okay, so he was, while he was on parole is when he assaulted that officer. But it, it was like right, a, it was right after he, it was that year after he got off parole. So he got off parole in February 1955, oh, okay. and then in okay. August of 55, that's when they, they assault that officer, but no charges. Okay, because I, I, sorry, I got lost and I missed that he had been released because then I was like, well, why, if he was still on parole, then why was he not just sent back? But, okay, right, yeah. sorry. And, and, you know, he, he talks about this time in between 55 and 61 that he was working as a truck driver for a while. He worked at a cannery, but, you know, he was having a hard time making ends meet. And now his family's starting to grow. You know, he's married and he's trying to have kids and all this stuff. So he, he realized that, you know, he forged a check and he spent, you know, like 20 days in the Twin Falls County Jail for this, this small forged check. And he said it was because I was broke. And that's basically what he gives this reason. So in his intake, he says, On June 8th, 1960, at Twin Falls, Idaho, Robert Joseph Tate and I burglarized W.P. Haney Warehouse. We entered the warehouse through an open door, which was on the roof. From the inside of the warehouse, we were able to open the main door of the warehouse. We took a company truck, which was sitting by the side of the warehouse, and loaded it with 150 sacks of beans. Robert McKenzie, who was not with us at the warehouse, had his truck parked one block away. We drove the load of beans to his truck and then reloaded the beans. This whole thing was McKenzie's idea, 
And basically, Tate and I just helped out. We were supposed to be paid 600 by McKenzie, but we actually only got paid 300 The beans were discovered missing the following day at the warehouse, and the police were notified. McKenzie was arrested in Twin Falls on June 9, 1960, so that's the next day, when the beans were found on his truck. When McKenzie was arrested, he implicated Tate and me. I was arrested about June 16, 1960 at Twin Falls. I was taken to court on June 20th, was arraigned, and requested a preliminary examination. A preliminary examination was held on July 6, 1960, and on July 6th, I was bound over to the district court. I was released on a $1,000 bond and remained on bond until sentenced September 6, 1960. So these are, I think, desperate individuals. They're stealing beans from a warehouse so that they can sell them. It was a, okay. it was 150 sacks of beans, though. Like, that is no small task. That's a like, lot. Yeah, well, and that's, I guess, where I'm confused is I was like, well, maybe they're stealing beans to feed their families. But then, yeah, 150 sacks is a lot of work. Right. It's That's not going to be, like, light. Those aren't light bags. Like, <laughs> and how much do beans sell for? Beans are cheap at the grocery store. I think that this was probably an opportunity crime that they knew about mm-hmm. this opening in this warehouse they knew that it would be an easy get, so, you know, why not go for it and just make a, a few extra dollars here? He's received September 14th, 1960 at the institution. It seems like he, he kind of made his way. Uh, everybody seemed to like him because in March, the March edition of The Clock, the prison newspaper that they, that they published mm-hmm. themselves here, he is actually listed as the inmate of the month, which is like, one of my favorite things we've learned so much about a lot of these inmates here because of this inmate of the month little uh-huh. write-up so this yeah. this write-up it says the inmate of the month of the month of march is in my opinion a very deserving fellow his number is 10578 and his name to me and everybody else in isp is just plain red so at the top i told you that was his nickname is red uh-huh. This fellow to me is the personification of wit, personality, and he possesses that one thing that so many of us lack but wish we had, a really warm smile. <laughs> Aw, that's so nice. This guy never complains about anything. He just goes about his business in his own way and does everything in that free and easy style that is so much of a part of him. At ISP, he toils in the laundry, and as far as I know, he's considered a very good man. He's also very active in sports and participates in all sports here, such as football, softball, and basketball. And he also indulges in a little horseplay, which, what is that? Maybe... Yeah, Dad, I don't know if I like the way that that's worded. <laughs> okay. And there's another side to this guy that a lot of people don't know about. Under that tough hide of his lies a very sentimental feeling for music. This fella is really talented. I've heard him play the piano and he can really swing. He doesn't play rock and roll, but sticks to that good type of music known as jazz. When he gets warmed up, he can really swing out with some wild foot warming music. He's a married man with a family, a boy and a girl, and is expecting an addition to the family soon. When his time is up here and he goes out a free man once more, he can always bet that old Red will be one happy guy. And you don't have to look for him back, for I think this guy can go out there in the free world and make a success of anything he undertakes. So when you see this fellow in the yard or in the loafing room, go up to him and say hello, and I'll bet you'll get a warm smile and a friendly hello. Say congratulations, Red Dog, and keep up the good work. 
That's so nice. I love this guy. Yeah. So, I mean, I love this write-up of him. He sounds really yeah, my who connection. Wrote that? Do you know? I don't. It did not list the author, and I bet it was probably just the editor's office that did it. That they probably uh, mm-hmm. teamed up and discussed. You know, who's somebody who? often these things are just like, you know, who's somebody who's working hard or has done something great in the prison yard that hasn't been recognized yet, which is always nice. And usually it's these like kind of quiet fellows that you you don't expect. And, and they write that a lot that it's like, man, this guy is probably going to be mad when he finds out that we made him inmate of the month, but seriously, go say hi to him. He'll warm you. He'll warm up to you. And, and it's great. Uh, but really the thing that I connected with him was just playing this jazz piano. Um, yeah, this this is what really turned me on to to researching this guy when I found this thing in the in the clock and I was like, "Wait, that's what I do. I've played like kind of professional jazz piano for for years and I used to play up in McCall at Shore Lodge and it's so cool to see that someone else was doing it at the prison." And he was probably sitting in the chapel hall playing on that piano. And if you come and visit, that piano is now in our administration building in the auditorium where we watch the video. I can imagine he was probably the one who was swinging, you know, playing all this really cool old jazz piano right there on that thing that that people can look at still to this day. Uh, Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I can see, I can definitely see why you relate to him in that way. For those of you who don't know, Anthony composed our theme music and you can hear his, some, a little bit of his piano playing and his artistic uh, genius. (laughs) Um, He made both... (laughs) Both the theme songs for our our main episodes as well as for our Stool Pigeon Saturdays. So, you know, Anthony and Red, just just the one and the same, practically. Uh, Practically minus the uh, inmate number here, so... Practically (laughs) minus literally everything besides that. Yeah, but I think we both served as much time at the Old Pen... uh... Yeah, I think we're both at about five years here. So Five years. <laughs> wow. <All right. laughs> so uh, while he's, he's incarcerated, just a few months after this little write-up in March, he receives a telephone telegram from his wife on May 11, 1961. And it says, dark-haired girl at 3.03 a.m., weight 6 pounds, 2 and 3 quarters ounce, both well, all my love, Elaine. And it's just, ah, it's so, it's it's sweet that, you know, he gets to find out. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, and it's part of the life of incarcerated individuals that their families' lives continue on without them. And in this case, he missed the birth of his daughter. But, you know, she, she thought enough that she, she contacted him and told him all the pertinent details that I bet a lot of his new friends that he made after this, this uh, clock article came out, they probably all wanted to hear all about this, and he was probably happy to share it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately... Just a few months after this, on September 12th, 1961, Delane receives a certificate of divorce from Elaine. Oh. Right. Well, that took a turn. It, yes. And this is a very common thing. She wrote the cause of the divorce as his conviction of felony and listing his city or town in this divorce document as the penitentiary. So they, they are granted this. They had three children at this point that they get divorced. And uh, he's he actually, not long after that, he's basically given trustee status and, and sent to Eagle Island to work on the prison farm, which is, you know, several miles away from the prison. And you just live in a dorm and there's, you know, very lax minimum security. And by October 1961, just 
not long after, he had to be transferred back to two-house segregation because the guard wrote that he was reluctant to do his assigned work. I think he was probably extremely despondent, extremely depressed. He's like, you know, why, why care to get out? I have nothing waiting for me on the outside. My, you know, my wife and, and kids, I'll never be able to come back to them. So he's locked up in, in two-house, segregated from the population. And finally, he's moved a couple months after this back to Four House and given a job in the prison laundry again. I think uh, it's a it's a common issue that uh, incarcerated individuals uh, run into when they realize that their family and you know the life outside of the prison walls is going to continue without them, and they are not going to be the center of this world. And Delane had to learn that really the hard way. He kept his act up, though. He didn't cause any issues. He didn't really have any... He had actually zero write-ups other than this, you know, not not really putting his heart into his work out at the prison ranch. And so he's actually given parole to Twin Falls April 15th, 1962. Now, this is the good news. His parole officer writes just about a year later this this great letter, and this just kind of brings everything back. So he writes... During the time he has been on parole, he has at all times kept himself employed at one job or another. He first went to work as a truck driver between here and Butte, Montana for a local produce company. Immediately after the trucking job was over, he went to work at the West Five Points Mobile Service Station. The officer says that, All in all, he has done a very fine job of his parole. I might add here, subject was very right in not wanting to go to his brother's home in California at time of his release from ISP. As things have turned out, he and his father are closer to each other than they have ever been. In addition, Subject has remarried his wife and has been doing a good job as a husband and father. His wife once stated to me, Delane is really a good daddy to his children, and we seem to come first with him now. From his actions and adjustment, I fully agree with his wife. He is a different man now than at any time I have known him. He is steadily employed, is a good employee. Therefore, I recommend to the board that his parole be terminated as early a date as possible. And he's actually given a discharge almost immediately on May 24th, 1963. And then from there, he actually stayed out of trouble and most likely kept swinging away on that piano. <laughs> yeah, he, he died on March 23rd, 1995 in Twin Falls and is buried at the Sunset Memorial Cemetery. And on his gravestone, it says Anderson, and it says Delane Dwight Red, son of Julian Elsie Novak and Andrew. November 10th, 1932, Lake Andy, South Dakota, March 23rd, 1995, Twin Falls, Idaho. He's just got such an, uh, an interesting story. And the fact that he seemed to be rehabilitated, that he, you know, made his family first. This parole officer seemed to be convinced that that's, in fact, what he had done. And, you know, I think a lot of, of uh, individuals who are leaving prison, a lot of them, that's all they want to do. They want to stay out. They want to uh, refocus their life and, and, you know, reintegrate back with their family. Uh, Delane, you know, he, he ran into hard times and instead of asking for help or, or going about it in, uh, in a better way, you know, he, he decided to commit some crimes and that never works out. And I think all the stories we tell kind of exemplify that. Right. Well, I think he learned that too, you Mm -hmm. know, like the fact that he committed this crime the second time and then, you know, he he had some some blows in that his wife divorced him. And I think, you know, it's it 
often took that second time for inmates to realize like, oh, hey, this is actually not something I want to do. Right. This is not a place I want to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I commend him for for really, you know, realizing that and and just trying to get his life back on track. Uh, and that's that's not easy for inmates who are released even today. You know, right. it, it's never easy to just jump back into into life and to, to stay away from, you know, those things that got you to the, the penitentiary, uh, you know, for whatever reason. And so I think that's a, that's such a nice, nice ending. Yeah. Yeah. I, cause I was kind of doing this all in order and I read that divorce decree right after this, uh, this, you know, telegram about the baby being born. It, it kind of made me tear up a little bit cause it was just like, Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. are you kidding I, I could I could imagine the feelings that he was going through is just like what have I done this is I just ruined my life like I'm never gonna know this child of mine and all of this stuff so oh man it's it's a great story it's full of of heartache and it's so musical I love it <laughs> <laughs> and so he he remained married to his wife until his death uh, yeah yeah I didn't find any uh any other divorce decrees. I believe that they remain married for the rest of their lives too. Aww. Yeah. That's such a good, good, happy ending. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, me too. Well, very nice work. That's such a, such a good note to end on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, let me, let me do say, um, I've been, uh, for those of you who don't know at this point, I, uh, we're recording this in September. It won't be released probably till November, but I have just recently moved to Texas and I'm recording remotely from my apartment. And so if there are sounds, I think my air conditioner goes off. And so hopefully that doesn't create too much of a buzz on my end. But if it does, I apologize and I will work on fixing that. But I'm, I'm so excited to be able to record this remotely and, um, and hopefully continue uh, to, to produce something that you guys like and, and are interested in hearing. And of course, Anthony's still out there at the pen and, you know, doing, doing his best work as he always does so um i just want to say that i'm excited to be able to continue to do this um and hopefully there's not too much ambient noise behind me wait did you explain why you're in texas i don't think i did i am currently um in a a phd program uh in history uh and so i'm uh in my second just about to finish my second week of classes and um down here at, at southern methodist university so the, all the Methodists that we talk about today, uh, I'm apparently ar- around uh, uh, quite a few of them. Um, but yeah, so I'm out here going to school, but but I, you know, Idaho is my home and, and I have a, a soft spot in my heart for all the ladies uh, out there at the, the Idaho State Penitentiary. Right. So I won't be giving up, you know, you guys can't get rid of me that easily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you literally wrote the book on the, uh, you know, female inmate population at the old Idaho Penitentiary. So who of course we got to continue this we got to you know finish telling all their stories here on this podcast so yeah totally. thank you sky for on top of all your phd work continuing to uh phone in and chat and and tell these stories with me oh, there's nothing else i'd rather do <laughs> all right well let's let's wrap this up uh do your own time do your own number all right we'll talk next week yeah If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, 
Follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.